Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. This is a re-release of my interview with Mog Morgan in which he describes his time flying the Sea Harrier on exchange during the Falcons conflict. The original has some audio issues and uh, I fixed those for this re-release. So beyond that, everything else is the same. There's no new content in here. This is really just for the people who are watching the original or listening to the original and are finding it difficult to hear my end of the conversation. Before you go and start listening to Mog, uh, please like, uh, subscribe, and share this content. There's no advertising on here, uh, so there's no monetization. I don't make money out of the channel, but I really would like to reach a wider audience. I'd like to get Mog's story out there to more people. Uh, you can help me do that, so please uh, hit the bell button, get notified of future content, and uh, share this with other like-minded aviation enthusiasts. And I'll let you get back to listening to Mog. Enjoy. The initial embarkation was was interesting. Uh, the first time I'd ever done a, a deck landing with any aircraft. And I was briefed very carefully um, to keep fuel to get back to Yeovilton until I knew I could land on Hermes because what they didn't want is me stuck at Leon Solent um, with not enough fuel to get back. Um, so I hung around sort of NAB Tower area um, off Portsmouth for about 10, 15 minutes waiting for them to give me clearance to land. Um, and eventually they said, okay, dump down to landing weight, dump fuel down to landing weight, make your approach. So I said, are you sure you want me to dump fuel? And they said, yes, dump fuel. So I dumped fuel down to landing weight. And as I made my approach, I realized that there was a bloody great floating crane being towed around the stern of the ship. And I didn't have fuel to get back to Yeovilton at this stage. So I did a dirty dart around this massive floating crane and um, landed on board when she was alongside my first ever landing uh, on a ship. Um, I was open the, shut the engine down, opened the hood, and the ladder was put up against the side of the aircraft, and I was expecting a maintainer to climb up. And it wasn't, it was my old friend, uh, Fred Fredrickson, who I joined Dartmouth with in 1966. Uh, he'd been hauled away from Boscombe Down, where he was a test pilot. And uh, first time I had seen him for probably 20 years, I would think. And his first words were to me, broad Geordie accent, we are your bugger, I told you we'd go to war one day. 
He was a brilliant guy, one of the best pilots, probably the best pilot I've ever flown with, actually. First class flight. How, how do you measure that, then? What are, what are the criteria you apply? Um, technical skill, uh, knowledge of the aircraft and systems, um, and tactical awareness. Um, and he had everything. Um, he was came from a from um, quite a lowly background, um, but was had a brilliant brain and, and was the most amazing pilot. Um, he um, was a very good test pilot and went on to be uh, boss of one of the frontline squadrons after the conflict. Is he still about? No, he died a couple of years ago now. Um, it's getting to that time of life, unfortunately. You mentioned deck landing. Then your your first deck landing, there was a fairly infamous incident that occurred where a Sea Harrier pilot put a Sea Harrier down on a container ship. That was a um, a classic case of all the holes in the cheese lining up. Um, Suds Watson was launched during an exercise um, off the coast of West Africa somewhere um, in radio silence um, with a radio which turned out to be unserviceable (laughs) when he needed it, launching out to a remote climbing point to try and disguise the position of the ship. So cruised out of 30 miles at low level and then climbed up to the cap station. Um, The end of the sortie, dropped back down to the remote point, came in at low level, um, couldn't find the ship. So climbed up to a thousand feet and turned the radar on and the only ship he could see in the area was quite a large radar contact. So he headed for it. He'd called the ship at this stage and had no reply because his radio was US. Um, and he got to this large contact and found it was a container ship and he didn't have fuel to do anything else. So it was either come up alongside the ship and eject or try and land on the top of the containers. And he chose the latter and very nearly pulled it off. He just drifted backwards off the top of the container at the last minute. Um, and the ship was the ship um, sailed on with his Harrier. Um, the um, had a, he had a training missile on an A nine Lima, um, and the head broke off when he launched uh, when he landed rather. And he knew that there's, there was some fairly um, secret stuff in the in the guidance. So he asked the captain if he could lock it away somewhere safe. And the only only place with a lock on it was the captain's bog. <laughs> so he, he locked it in the cars. He <laughs> <laughs> that was a Spanish registered vessel as well. If my it memory was the Alrego, if memory yeah. serves me. So it's a politically a little yeah. a little dicey. Yes, <clears throat> well, it was all very um, it was all very well handled because the um, maritime law is is quite clear in cases like this with crown property, um, and the. Um, ship's master and the company agreed to hand the aircraft over and went into port and they were going to crane it off 
And the ship's company said, no, we want more money. There was an agreed amount that was going to be paid out as salvage, but they wanted more. Um, so there was a bit of a hoo-ha, and eventually the MOD said, well, every day this aircraft is on your ship, it's losing value because of the saltwater corrosion. So if you don't give it back to us soon, there won't be any salvage. Um, and the deal was finalized by um, the lawyer for the shipping agents ringing up Yeoldton and saying, have you got any squadron badges? Give us a squadron badge and we'll sign the document. <laughs> <laughs> the AIM-9L you had mentioned previously I think the the G model AIM-9 was what you'd had um, at yeah. rear aspect capability AIM-9L introduced a, a, a frontal aspect capability um, yeah. there was there is a story and I don't know if this is you know just sort of urban rumor or if you can substantiate it that those were hastily provided by the Americans uh, in the immediate build up to the to the conflict um, is that true? Yeah. it is uh, we sailed with 11 of them. Um, there was a Concorde sent to the States, which came back with some in the hold. <laughs> um, we had them dropped into us by long-range Hercules on about day three or four of the, the conflict. Uh, at the stage where we'd fired quite a few of the lemurs and realized that we were going to have to either have aircraft with two golfs or a golf and a lima, which makes it difficult when you're trying to decide which, which one to fire, to remember which side it, uh, which one's on. And um, these big green boxes dropped out of the back of the Hercules with um, big labels on the side saying, you safey, Bitburg, so the German air base. Um, where the Americans were based uh, in the uh, Middle Rhine area. And that was crossed out in China Graph Pencil and Hermes South Atlantic written on it. <laughs> and we, we came, we got to the stage where if we fired one more Lima, we were going to have to use a Golf to replace it. Um, but that resupply, and there were a couple of subsequent ones as well, um, meant that we could continue using the Lima's. So can you, um, in, again, in the book, you described the sort of workup that went on as you headed down to, to the South Atlantic. Um, what was the mood like? What was the the feeling like amongst, you know, the ship's company, certainly, but but mostly amongst the, the Sea Harrier pilots? Uh, we were very focused. Um, quite a lot of the ship's company thought, that we weren't going to actually get to the Falklands, uh, that it was just going to be the stick we wave and there'd be a negotiated settlement and we'd all go home. I don't think any of us on the squadron thought that was going to happen. I think the best we thought might happen is that we would actually get to the Falklands, make a show of force and they'd go home because we knew that Maggie wanted them out and wouldn't be satisfied until they were. Um, I was I was ninety percent certain we were going to have to fight, um, and we all pulled out all the stops to get ourselves as as uh, current and well practiced as we possibly could in in all the roles that we knew we would have to um, take on. Uh, the air to ship role was fairly well known by the squadrons. Um, although we had to come up with tactics against the Type 42 frigates, which um, 
uh, sorry, Type 42 destroyers, um, which we'd sold to the Argentines. Um, and we hadn't really practiced against our own weapon systems. Um, we also had to do the ground attack uh, mm -hmm. side of things, which most of the Sea Harrier pilots, if they'd done it at all, it was a long, long time ago in Buccaneers. Uh, so we had to rethink tactics again there. And that's where my experience in Germany for four years uh, came in very handy. And we also had um, Ted Ball, who'd been on four squadron out in Germany, um, and Clive Morell, who'd done an exchange tour as a naval pilot uh, with three squadron in Germany. So we earned Bertie Penfold as well, who'd been out in Germany flying GR3s. So we had a pretty good core of ground attack pilots for um, des designing airfield attacks and that sort of thing. On, on the air-to-air -air side, one of the things that's notable to me um, reading through your book is the lack of an AWACS capability, command control structure. Um, and my understanding of very, very limited understanding of uh, carrier battle groups, if you could call it that, is that they like to keep quiet and keep their radars off. They don't want people to know where they are. You've just alluded to that. Um, and you talked in our last conversation about the Sea Harrier having, of course, a, a radar that was designed really to get you to the merge or get you to the point where you could see somebody and then visually engage them. Um, so from an air-to-air -air point of view, then, did that suggest that the carrier group had to keep all its radars working in order to feed you with the information, contact information, or were there periods where they turned everything off and you went out and, and just took your chances? There were periods that went radar silent. Um, most of the time we had uh, radar pickets up threat that were active, and they were the only early warning we had, and that was obviously limited. They were probably 40 miles up threat. Um, so they could see another, well, at low level, probably only another 30 miles. So that was um, the only real warning we had, apart from um, intelligence from around the air, air bases in Argentina. So that, that would have been the, uh, the, the special forces that were inserted to, to watch people no, take No, it wasn't, actually. No, it was the Navy. <coughs> It was, um, well, it, in fact, it was, there were two strands. Um, we uh, took a radar down into southern Chile. The Air Force transported a radar down there and set it up on top of a mountain so they could look over into Argentina. Um, the Chilean Air Force kept it afterwards. Uh, and we had submarines sitting off the coast monitoring all the movements. In fact, the only submarine of ours that nearly got sunk was nearly hit by um, a Skyhawk who couldn't drop its bombs over the island and jettisoned them about 10 miles out coming home and straddled this bloody nuclear submarine. <laughs> wow. Did, did you know at the time that that's where the information was coming from? No, all we knew was that we would from time to time get definite information that raids were on their way. Hmm. Uh, not all of them, because not all the air bases are covered, but um, we, we did get some information. You mentioned in your book um, the, the sinking of the Sheffield, and the uh, I think it was the Exocet, the, the French-made Exocet that, that had caused that, and there was some question about how many they had left. 
Um, what what was the capabilities of that missile in in terms of um, you know your ability to defend against it? Did you have to have lots and lots of notice that some etondards were going to come along and fire one of those things off, or could you quite quickly get into position to deny them the shot if if you needed to? If we if we knew the super E's were coming in, and we knew from which direction then we could put a cap out there and we might just have found them, but they were coming in very low level, 50 feet. Um, and with the best will in the world, the Blue Fox radar was not going to see them down at 50 feet. Um, it would have been a visual pickup. Unless we got far enough out to catch them before they actually started to descend, probably about 150 plus miles out. Um, so from that point of view, it would have been difficult to intercept them. Had we found them, uh, we would have certainly had them because they, we, we could actually accelerate and cruise faster than they could. And apart from that, um, we discovered later if once they'd armed the missile, if they then uh, did more than about a 45 degree bank turn, it toppled the gyros. So the missile would have been useless anyway. Um, but certainly, uh, had we been in the right place at the right time, they were number one priority. But uh, they, they played it extremely well. It came in low level, popped up, one sweep of the radar, took the shot and disappeared home again. You mentioned a couple of times, it's sort of a theme that runs through the, the chapters of the book that I've got through so far, which is, you know, not wanting to be stuck in the boat, um, you know, sort of being a target, being below decks, you know, happy to be able to go out and fly. Um, as, as you sort of made your way down then, were you really aware of the Exocet threat? Was that something that really materialized only later when the Sheffield was, was sunk? No, we knew they had Exocets. Uh, we didn't know at what stage of preparation or training they were. And we knew they had limited numbers. And we also knew they were trying desperately to get hold of some other ones. Um, and we knew it was a threat, uh, a genuine threat, because the, the uh, surface navy, our surface navy, had the same missile, ship-launched version. So we knew all about it. We knew the frequencies um, and so on. And we knew how you could try and defeat it if one was heading inbound. Uh, and we did successfully defeat some of them. How many did they have? I can't remember how many it was now. Two, four, I think five or six. Um, not many. And in fact, I was talking to one of the pilots on the Super Atondar squadron that came to visit me last summer. And his squadron boss had said, right, um, We've only got half a dozen missiles, so we're not all going to get a chance to fire them. So if you get airborne with a missile, that's your chance. When you come home, when you land back, we're going to send you home. And that happened to him. He, uh, he got airborne and um, he was on the raid that hit the um, Atlantic conveyor. And they had one missile each, both fired, went home, and he was met as he got out of the aircraft and told there was a Gulfstream 5 waiting across the pan, and 
with without even going back to his barracks. He was put into the aircraft and sent back to Buenos Aires and um, knocked on his flat door at two o'clock in the morning and said, I'm home. That was his war. Yeah. Yes. Yes, very obvious for, for, I think he was away for six weeks uh, and wasn't allowed to tell anyone where he was because um, they were pretty scared that the specials were going to come and find them, which they, they did plan to. <laughs> Yeah, there was a book. I, I'm not again. I'm not really into sort of the the land warfare side of things, but I did read a book uh, fairly recently about an SAS trooper who had uh, who described that plan to go and get the Etondar pilots, and uh, they knew where they were sleeping and on the uh, you know on the base, and uh, it was apparently going to be a bit of a one way mission, but they were they were sort of prepared to do it. So um. yes, there were two there were two plans. One using a Hercules. Um, where they just land the Hercules, the boys would jump out of the back, go and do the job, and then if they were lucky, get back in the aircraft again. Um, and the second one was um, a seeking full of troops, which left later on in the conflict. And the seeking was then found burnt out on the beach in Chile a few days later. They they survived in the mountains for um, I think a week or so a week or 10 days and then gave themselves up and um, were shipped back to UK. There was, there was quite a lot of, quite a lot of work going on between the, the Chilean armed forces and our armed forces. Getting back then to, to you steaming down to the, to the South Atlantic. Um, so you mentioned that those are the, the three missions that you had to sort of prepare for the air to air the anti-ship and the air to ground um you picked up the air to ground side of things on, on account of your previous experience and so you were planning then the first mission uh, you, you you knew all along what that first mission was going to be yes we suspected from square one that we would have to take out the airfield with stanley because the runway was just about long enough to get a light loaded super tondar off um you could certainly land aircraft there and in fact they put a chain arrestor gear on on the runway so um, fast jets could get in there certainly um, so we knew we had to take that runway out uh, well take the airfield out the problem with the runway of course is you can't if you're going to take a runway out you need to bury a bomb deep into the runway and then get it to explode and if you just drop a bomb on the surface it'll explode and make a little scab and, and not put the runway out of commission so you have to get penetration which means the bomb has to go in as near vertical as you can get um, two ways you can do that you can either drop it from high altitude or you can drop it from slightly lower altitude but in a steep dive and um, that was initially one of our possibilities we managed to steal some night vision goggles from Boscombe Down uh, one of the helicopter test pilots uh, embarked with the uh, jungly sea kings and he'd nicked a few um, few of these <laughs> night vision goggles um, which were i think gen gen 2 gen 3 they were the the first ones that didn't have a massive great battery pack on your chest and so on they were quite up to date and 
we worked out you can fly them in the Harrier without, with a little bit of modification, just uh, covering a few lights with acetate and so on. And so I reckon the 30 degree dive bomb at night would be a pretty good way of plunking bombs down the runway. Until we got intelligence of the defences, the air defences they put in Stanley. And after that, we decided that would not be a very good idea because they had the Roland missile system, which a 30 degree dive attack would have been absolutely perfect for the Roland. Uh, they also had radar laid 35 millimeter Ehrlichans. Um, and any of either of those weapons would have would have just eaten us if we tried to do that at night. So we um, threw that away and went in for a low level option, knowing that we couldn't actually damage the runway, but hopefully we'll be able to take out a lot of the um, support facilities at the airfield and also drop a few cluster bombs and leave a few unexploded bomblets around, which certainly get people people's attention. When I read that you you, you had uh, sort of trialled those uh, night vision goggles, there, there were two things I thought. The first was how extraordinary it was that you just did it on the fly. Um, you know, pardon the pun. I mean, now there are workup programs. You know, if you're going to fly on yeah. night vision goggles, you go out and do uh, you know the full workout workup. Um, and the second thing was then why you discarded them it seems like you discarded them totally then you didn't use them there was a lot of daylight flying a lot of daylight ops um if the argentinians didn't have a nighttime capability um could you not have continued to use them it was more important for the seeking guys to use them uh, the commando seekings were flying in every night and either dropping off or picking up special forces or both so they were the guys that really needed them uh, for for night the very few night sorties that we did, um, you actually night vision goggles wouldn't have given you very much extra because you could get the radar onto the target. They would have been medium to high level targets, um, and you could um, get a radar pickup and, and launch a missile without actually seeing them. So, so as you get closer to the Falcons, then the the plan for the the strike on on the airfield at Stanley solidifies, and, and you you know you talk about being one of the chief architects of that. Can can you describe that plan? Then how was it going to work? How did it work? Yeah, we had uh, the plan was for um, to use all twelve aircraft that we had on Hermes. Um, the attack itself was nine, uh, which was the my original plan was to do an attack through 360 degrees so it'll pull pull all the defenses um away from whoever was the next man and to do that i planned to take in four sea harriers from the south coming in from the south over the sea uh, so they wouldn't have been seen in all probability until they pulled up at about two and a half miles to release the bombs. And pulling up and releasing them in about a 45 degree um, climb using the pretty good kit on the aircraft to automatically release the bombs onto known geographic locations where the defences were. And we'd put uh, skillets of I-band chaff in between the bomb 
and the pylon. So when the bomb came off, it formed a huge bloom of chaff. And with four aircraft doing this in very close proximity, and then peeling outbound and escaping behind the chaff cloud, I reckoned that they would be perfectly safe. And um, that would get all the defences looking to the south, the missiles and the guns. And then um, 30 seconds after the bombs hit, we would come in from the north uh, from two separate directions in a flight of two and another flight of three. Uh, four of us, first four with cluster bombs and the last man with thousand pound retard bombs because the captain was absolutely insistent that we put thousand pound bombs on the runway, despite the fact that we said it wouldn't do any good. Um, so Bertie Penfold had three thousand pounders down the back to drop on the runway <laughs> and it just made little scabs and didn't make any, uh, didn't do any damage at all. Um, but they, they that plan the captain didn't like because he said if you have guys coming up to do a loft profile they'll get shot down um, and I said well we're going to lose probably two aircraft in the mission anyway um, so you take your pick uh, but he insisted that they come in from they ingress with us from the north behind the mountains and then split out to sea and come in at about 45 degrees off our attack heading, um, which meant that the, uh, the defenders were actually looking to the north as opposed to and the original plan was to have them looking south. Um, but as it transpired, we, we all got through. Um, I reckon the boss would get shot because he was the, going to be the first one over the target at low level. And I reckon the last guy through the target would probably get shot as well. Because at that stage, there would be no... Although we were three-second intervals, um, he would probably get a lot of fire going out. Uh, so I put myself as number two. Uh, <laughs> reckoning that the boss would get shot, I'd be fine. And uh, it'd be promotion all round. <laughs> uh, it didn't quite work out like that because... Uh, coming in from the north, we split um, just to the north of Mount Low, which was on the north side of the, the large outer harbour. Um, and the brief was that the only radio call that was going to be given during the attack was Clive Morell, who was the last loft bomber to release his bombs, would just say, bombs gone. And then we knew that we had time of flight explosion 30 seconds for the shrapnel to come down again and then we'd be safe and we timed our run to coincide with that but if we got to a certain point which was a beam a little place called Koshon Island um, and we hadn't heard Clive's call the brief was we do a, a screaming Jesus 360 turn and then run in anyway so that would give us about another 20 seconds uh, spacing so we didn't get thousand pound bombs in the back of our heads unfortunately i as just as we were approaching the uh, the point i heard clive say bombs gone bombs gone and the next thing i saw was uh, andy old the boss go into a screaming right hand turn because he hadn't heard the call 
side being good number two followed him round and as we went through a westerly heading I saw to my horror the other three aircraft hopping over the saddle in the hills and running in on the airfield which meant that I was going to be the last one over the airfield which is just where I didn't want to be um, I came around the side of Mount Low going as fast as low as I'd ever been doing 480-ish knots at 50 feet. Um, and my first sight of the airfield was just a huge hemisphere of explosions. And my initial thoughts, quite illogically, were that the cluster bombs were going off early. And what it was, was anti-aircraft fire. Um, tracer, explosions, um, missiles, just everything crisscrossing the sky. And for about a nanosecond, I thought, Christ almighty. And then I was aware of my hand going forwards and then back again, uh, purely involuntary. And I was down at about five or six feet over the water, um, still doing 480 knots. It just seemed a bit safer down there somehow. Um, I dived between a couple of small island, islands, the Tussock Islands, which are only about 15 feet high, if that, um, but afforded me some cover at the height I was. And I could see people up on the sand dunes on the north side of the airfield firing down at me. and see the old flashes on the sand dunes and see the tracer coming towards me. And then it was weird, it was, sounds stupid, it was just like a war film where the tracer comes up in a sort of lazy arc and then suddenly accelerates past you. And it does, it's just like that. And I could see the stuff bouncing off the water all around me. And I went to fire my guns, squeezed the trigger, trying to put a bit of 30 millimeter into the sand dunes and nothing happened, and I realized later that I hadn't actually put the gun's masters on. Um, lesson number one in wartime, make your guns live as soon as you're airborne, don't wait until you're pointing in a safe direction on the range. Um, anyway, I then came over the sand dunes, and looking at the, the gun sight film afterwards, all, all of us were between, the radio altimeter was flicking between five and 15 feet as we were on the run-in. But the cluster bomb needed 150 feet to fuse. So as I pulled up, as I came over the sand dunes, I pulled up rapidly and leveled at 150 feet and saw the air traffic control tower. And just in front of it was a Britain Norman Islander just on the north side of the runway. So I decided to drop my bombs on him. Um, hit the button, felt the first one come off the port wing, third of a second later, one off the starboard wing. And as that came off, there was a huge explosion somewhere just behind me. And the aircraft started vibrating like mad. Um, so much vibration that I couldn't actually read any of the cockpit instruments. Um, and I pressed the button again and got rid of the third bomb, which actually rolled over the air traffic control pan and took out some of the windows. And then 
dived into a pall of smoke which had been caused by Ted Ball, who was the next to last guy through the target, um, who set light to a fuel dump just behind the tower. So I headed for that pall of smoke and I can remember very clearly going past with my head level with the windows of the control tower and thinking, okay, that's about 50 feet, and that's, that's safe. Um, it wasn't until I went back after the conflict was over, I realized it was a single story building. And the, I was, my eye level was about 10, 10 or 12 feet, I suppose. So the bottom of the aircraft was about four or five feet above the deck. Um, went into the smoke, and I knew that there was a small hill behind the tower. So I, I broke left out of the smoke, started to run out to the southeast, and got locked up by an anti-aircraft radar, um, broke into it, um, popped the air brake to dispense the chaff in our homemade chaff mod, which broke the lock of the radar. So I then broke right again and ran out as low as I possibly could over the beach and out to sea. Um, still not able to see anything in the cockpit with all the vibration. Um, got out about five or six miles out to sea and realized at that stage I was out of Roland range, so I was pretty safe. I eased the throttle back a bit, uh, started to drop the speed back. And as the speed decreased, the vibration decreased as well. And by the time I got about 350 knots, um, I could actually read everything in the cockpit and had a good scan around to see if there was any damage. And the only thing I could see was that the rudder trim gauge, which is the thing about the size of a five pence piece down by your left knee, the rudder trim gauge had failed. Um, so it was a bit of a clue something was going on in the tail. Um, once we got clear, we checked in. And to my amazement, everybody checked in. Uh, it was the most wonderful feeling I think I've had. Um, just to know that all the guys had got through okay. Um, and I said, you know, I'm, I've been hit, but I'm okay. I'm, I'm might need search and rescue. And we had a Sea King that was about 40 miles out, just in case any of us needed a, needed a, a lift. Um, so I let everyone else land on first. Ted Ball came up uh, to give me a visual inspection. Came up the left side, side of the nose, dropped back all the way and said, can't see anything, popped underneath me, came up the starboard side, side of the nose, started slipping back and then said, ah, you've got a bloody great hole in your tail. Um, and there was a hole the size of my head in the tail. Um, and later we discovered quite a lot of small holes down the starboard tail plane. Um, what I wanted to know was whether the reaction controls were still working in the tail, because without that, I wouldn't have been able to hover. Um, so I got Ted to sit by my tail while I moved the rudder pedals and um, didn't realise actually how far the back of the aircraft moves when you move the rudder pedals, but um, 
he got a bit got a bit close to Ted, but he said, I think they're moving, but I'm not sure. So he went back and landed and they cleared all the aircraft to the side of the deck. And I decided that I might not be able to hover. And what I didn't want to do is to, as I decelerated alongside the ship, lose control and maybe crash uh, on the deck. Um, so I set myself up for a rolling vertical landing, which was used ashore, but it was, had never been cleared for use on the ship because there's a very good chance of rolling over the side um, because the brakes on the Harrier were not very good. But I set myself up at about 50 knots indicated, uh, which would have been probably about a 25 knot overtake on the ship. And um, gradually slowed myself down and I still had control. So I plonked it on the back end of the ship, um, probably about 25, 30 knots and uh, brought it to a halt just before the ski jump. Um, taxied, they taxied me off. I uh, heaved a huge sigh of relief, opened the canopy, unstrapped, and was just about to get out when the BBC cameram cameraman arrived and said, oh, can you get back in and give us the thumbs up? So uh, quite a few of the bits of film from that day have got me going like that. And it's actually, I got back in the cockpit and given another thumbs up. I then went round the back of the aircraft to inspect the damage. Um, and uh, I was quite surprised. And there's, that's probably the only part of a Harrier that would take a hole that big and, and um, not be terminal. Uh, but it was patched up and flying again the next morning, and I've actually got got the hole mounted on a piece of pl a marine ply in the study. There's so many questions to ask about that <laughs> uh, about that story, but, but let, let me let me go right back to the beginning then, if I, if I may. The captain um, expressing a view on on how the, the mission should be planned. Um, it's interesting because. Of course, you go from Vietnam where the politicians pick the targets and uh, the times and the loadouts and, and all that sort of stuff. And you think, well, there's a learning opportunity. Um, and I, I just did an interview with one of the pilots from the Eldorado Canyon raid, the, the 86 raid on Libya, uh, where he, he basically said exactly the same as you, which is, you know, if we had been able to plan the attack, we would have come in from multiple directions, split the defenses, you know, created confusion, drawn them away in this area and then come in from that area. And, and that's what he would have done. But of course... Um, they were overruled and they were told you're going to go in from one direction and, and you'll do it at regular intervals. And uh, Was there anything that you could do or the squadron boss was able to do to, to, to sort of mitigate that? It was difficult. Uh, Lynn Middleton had very set views. He was, um, he was a very outspoken South African. Um, he had been a buccaneer pilot uh, before that, he was a Seahawk pilot, and he had taken part in Suez. And um, when we showed him our plan for the airfield, he said, no, no, I want bombs on the runway. And we said, there's, there's no point. Um, and this attack gets everyone through in, in, we hope, relative safety at three-second intervals. And he said... I want thousand-pound bombs. I said, "Well, you you can't put thousand-pound bombs on the runway from low level and do any damage." So, oh, 
do what we did in Suez. We went in in close formation at low level and the leader said, pickle, pickle now. It's not going to work, sir. <laughs> um, that, was, that was just the, the first instance, actually. Um, there, were, there was another time a couple of days later that, um, well, a while later, actually, um, when the, the ships in the Sound were screaming out for combat air patrol when they were getting hammered after the landings. And um, Lynn Middleton had insisted on keeping a couple of Harriers with thousand-pound bombs on at the back of the deck in case the uh, Argentine carrier came within striking range. And uh, we um, we sent Fred Fredrickson, actually, my, my good mate, uh, was sent out by helicopter to go around the uh, warships in the Sound to find out what we could do to help knock out the raids before they got there. Um, and uh, Fred came back and reported to the captain. And the, Lynn Middleton said, OK, Fred, the, what do the boys want? And uh, Fred said, they say, send more caps, sir. And Lynn said, well, you know, we've got to keep two aircraft back with bombs on in case the 25th of May comes over the horizon. And he said, anyway... His son was a helicopter pilot on one of the frigates. He said, did you see my son? And Fred said, yes, yes, sir, I, I did. And he said, uh, what, did he have a message for me? He said, yes, it, send more fucking cat. <laughs> Get to the point then where you you can, I mean, I don't know anything about the military. I've not been in the military. There's obviously chain of command and, you, you know, you you can't go around lying but do you get to the point where, where you try and you know sort of not advertise what it is you're doing or you try to do, do use sneaky methods to get away with doing what you want to do even though you've been told to do something else uh, we were lucky in that the, the uh, commander air wings um was a really good guy and he fought our corner very hard with the captain and it was it was actually rare that that we were constrained. Uh, just one or two instances like that. Um, but the captain actually was, was hardly seen during the conflict uh, by the ship's company. Um, the commander, John Locke, um, basically ran the ship and made all the broadcasts. I don't think the captain came on the broadcast during the conflict at all. He was too busy or, or he was just... He, he sort of delegated that. Yeah, he delegated it to, to John Locke, um, but it would have been, I think, you know, great for morale if the captain would could come on the broadcast and, and uh, give the odd chuck up. The other thing that obviously stands out in your um, in that first mission is the low-fly aspect. And, of course, the RAF um, certainly has a reputation or, or did have a reputation for being masters in, in that particular domain. Um, yeah, 100 feet was the minimum that they allowed people to be authorised down to in the Air Force. It was normally 250 feet, and if you did a workup, you could go down to 100 feet. Um, in peacetime in the Navy, I authorised my junior guys down to 50 feet. Below 50 feet, you're on your own, really. 
Yeah, so that that was what I was going to ask. I mean, if you're used to flying, so there were two things that sort of stood out to me when when I read about this in the, in the book. You know, the first was that if you're hard failed and you had the uh, you, you had written the you put the China graph marks on on the hard to allow you to still sort of aim the bombs and the second was that there were two marks and one of them was for you to be hunched down low uh which i yeah. loved i thought that was brilliant such great foresight um but, but so so when you did it then you you are you know because you've done it how difficult it is to get that work up down from 250 to you know 200 and 150 100 and then you know 50 for for, for your guys in the navy um, how much difficult, more difficult is it then to go from the 50 to the 5 uh, to 15 that you were talking about? Is that something that requires required conscious effort at that time? It, it just seemed natural at the time with, with all, the, all the bullets and tracer and God knows what coming in your direction. It seems safer down low. Uh, the only problem is when you're down that low, all you can do is look ahead and, and judge your height. Uh, you can't look out of the side. You've got no tactical awareness at all. Um, even if no one's shooting at you, you know, if you're over the sea, flying down at, at 50 feet, you have to give all your concentration on not flying into the water. So tactically, it's it's not a desperately clever move uh, unless there's a very good reason for it. Um, bloody good fun, though. <laughs> Did, did any of that footage, the HUD footage, did any of that survive? I don't think it did, no. No, I, a lot of the time we were flying without um, without cameras because there were a restricted number of cameras. Uh, and in fact, the one time that I had a camera that would have been interesting, uh, I didn't turn it on. The other question I was going to ask about that first raid... Um, was you talk uh, through the book about previous near a uh, previous near death experience in Germany where you had you pulled up off of a target and were looking at, a, at your map to report back the the coordinates of the target and then when you popped your head up you you were diving at the ground and you mm. you pulled out but by the skin of your teeth and and you talked about a sort of delayed psychosomatic response to that later on um one of the things that is really um, quite sort of astounding, I think, to, to read about is that even after only the first week of combat, you're talking about being exhausted, uh, you know, physically, oh, mentally. Uh, and within that first week, the there so there are two Sea Harrier squadrons. There's those on the Invincible and those on the on the Hermes. Um, there have been th- three Harriers lost and three pilots killed in the course of that first week. And and I wondered then, having been hit, having had that very um, I guess surreal experience of looking at sand dunes and seeing people shooting down on you. And I think you mentioned in the book that you you see a cow and it sort of lifts its head and stops. Oh yeah, and that, then, was, that, was, that was that was red going into uh, attack goose green at the same time. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So I just I, I wonder then sort of what the emotional aspect is like. Then how do you uh, keep going? People find their own different ways. Um, I went to my cabin and wrote poetry, um, which helped ease some of the stresses that were happening. Um, other guys found different ways of doing it, but, um, yeah, it was remarkable. The first week I just got more and more exhausted 
and then after probably 10 days it, it plateaued and seemed seemed to get easier uh, i guess the emotional side as well as the physical side really does take its toll and as you say we lost, we lost three guys in the first few days um and you know we only had we only had 21 aircraft to start with yeah we knew we were up against somewhere around possibly 120 140 fast jets you mentioned as well in that first week that you were running an intercept on a on a contact at, at sort of sea level could have been a ship could have been a helicopter um and you you talk about almost flying into the sea then um mm. and that's what prompts you then to recall the story about germany and the psychosomatic response you'd had uh, and i just thought well you know if you that sounds actually like not such a bad deal in comparison to the first mission where you know all these things are happening and you get hit um but but you sort of quite coolly talk about how you just sort of put it away as another learning experience that it it, you know is this an exposure thing you know the more times this sort of thing happens to you the less it affects you i would have thought for most people it would work the other way around you i think that's right Uh, certainly when it comes to friends dying um you do get well in those days you 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 tend to get inoculated against it um because all the way through training and in normal frontline flying you lose guys on a not necessarily monthly basis but every year you you'd have a dozen or so guys killed in just normal training so from that point of view, you, you tend to be able to have a, oh, shit moment and then have a few beers and then get on with it. Um, and I guess it's the same with exposure to, to wartime flying. Um, you, you eventually accept it as the norm. In terms of the, the book... Um hostile skies that, that you wrote it contains some of your letters home uh, and you talk about death you talk about not fearing necessarily the process because it would be sort of fast and you know not sort of lingering and you can only it will only hurt you as much as you allow it to um so were you not scared of dying not not really um there, there seem to be more important things to be honest um the job seem to be more important than than being worried about dying. I think the only time I was scared in the air was when I saw all the guys shooting at me from Stanley Airport. That, for a fraction of a second, scared me. Um, the only other time that I felt huge concern was when I was in the ship and I knew there was an exocet coming for us, and there was nothing I could do. Um, just pull the old anti-flash on, hang on to my pint of beer, and see what happened. And that, that was not a nice feeling. Um, John Locke was, was great, but he gave us a little bit too much information on that occasion, sort of giving the countdown to the impact of the missile. Um, but it hit Atlantic conveyor instead. Yeah, it was, it was launched at Hermes, we turned downwind, fired chaff, um, and the missile was 
pulled off us by the chaff and picked up the next big target, which was the Atlantic conveyor, hmm. which happened to be the third most important ship in the fleet, actually. It was carrying uh, troops and supplies? Yeah, helicopters, uh, supplies, fuel, bombs, and um, what we thought was all the Harrier strip that was going to be laid at San Carlos. So we thought we'd lost all the strip, but in fact they managed to cobble together 600 feet or 700, 650 feet or something of strip uh, from other ships. The uh, sort of um, observant amongst the, the listeners would probably think, well, you've got vertical takeoff capability, but presumably that there's a weight limit to that. That's why you'd need a landing strip or a takeoff strip. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, on, a, on, a, on a good cold day, using water injection, you could probably, off the top of my head, um, get airborne with two and a half thousand pounds of fuel, something like that. So that's 20 minutes flying vertically. Um, whereas if you use a 650 foot runway, you can get airborne with six and a half thousand pounds of fuel. So you've got nearly an, got an hour's flying. There was a, uh, a chapter, I think, in your book where you, you talk about attacking, was it the narwhal? The yeah. uh, Argentinian, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a fishing boat that's been sequestered and turned into an intelligence gathering ship, isn't it? Um, can you describe that experience? Yes, that, that was all a bit of a surprise. Um, I went off with a chap called Gordy Bat, who was a delightful character, um, brilliant guy. Uh, he'd been on an exchange tour in the States flying um, A6s, I think. Um, brilliant sense of humour. Uh, I was leading him for some reason, I can't remember why, because he was very experienced and I was a new boy. But we went out with 1,000-pound bomb centerline and two missiles. And the idea was we dropped the bombs on the airfield from high altitude, just using a point um, measured from the center of the runway for the forward flight of the bomb from whatever it was, 20,000 feet. Not using any weapon aiming as such, but just to um, just to... Keep, keep the boys on the ground on their toes by having the odd thousand pound egg dropping in the middle every so often. Um, but we were told um, by the captain not to drop unless we could see the airfield. And there was cloud cover over the airfield. So we turned out on our cap station down to the southeast uh, of Stanley. And I flashed up my radar and found a surface contact. So we let down together through the overcast. It was only a few hundred feet cloud base. Um, came out of the bottom, ran in towards the target. Gordy uh, moved out uh, about a thousand, thousand yards on my left in a good battle formation. And um, I saw the ship and said, you know, we'll... We'll do a, a crossover um, over the ship, see if we can identify it. And I went straight in from the starboard side of the ship and Bertie came around behind me to go fore and aft. And I got the name as I went past and uh, called it back to 
the ship that was controlling us. I said it's called the Narwhal, and um, Gordy said, and it's got a bloody great RG flag on this on it. So um, we sent this back, and about hmm, thirty seconds later, the controller came back to us and said, "Engage it," which was a bit of a surprise because, as far as I could see, it was just a, a stern trawler. But having said that, the nets were all very neatly stowed on the deck. There was no sign of any fishing. So I said to, to Gordy, um, okay, we'll engage it with guns, but let's get rid of the bombs first. Because we couldn't land back on board with a thousand pounds, at least they didn't want us to, in case we had a, a bit of a nasty on the deck. So we set up, um, I came in, um, from the starboard side and did a bit of sort of mini pull up and released the bomb and then turned away and I saw it go between the bridge and the derricks on the stern and hit the water beyond it and Gordy came in from the bow and we didn't see what happened to his bomb but in fact it went into the forecastle and down two decks and um ended up in the forehead heads. Uh, unfortunately, one of the crew members was in there, um, which didn't do him much good. But neither of them went off because they were fused for high-level drop with about an 11-second fuse before they armed, uh, and we knew they wouldn't go off from their level. We then went around and said, okay, follow me round, and we'll do some strafe. Once again, the cloud base was very low for strafe. You normally want to get a nice 10-degree dive. Uh, because the guns on the Harrier actually point a few degrees upwards. Um, and we couldn't do that. So I just did a level attack, um, starting with the guns high, and then bunting, pulling the trigger, and and walking the, the rounds up the side of the ship. And in fact, because I fired at quite long range, I saw my first round starting to hit the ship as I pulled the nose up to recover. Um, I then noticed a dark shape coming in the opposite direction with sparkles underneath it, and it was Gordy. He lost me visually and decided to attack anyway, and we did a 180 out attack on the ship and a sort of red arrows um, pass over the top. God knows how we didn't get shrapnel from each other. Anyway, he then fell in behind me, uh, I did another attack from the bow, uh, and then he did an attack and actually uh, hit the front of the bridge um, with probably, I don't know, 15, 15 or 20 rounds, uh, just lit up the whole of the bridge. And at that stage, the ship... Oh, I forgot to say, Gordy actually fired shots across the bow while I was still coming back down, having talked to the, the controller and the ship didn't stop. But when he actually hit the bridge, it, it stopped. Um, so we then went back um, to Hermes, and um, the position was passed on to Invincible. Uh, yes, um, yes, Invincible, uh, who launched a Sea King full of special forces. To, to The idea was to capture it and use it to insert special forces. 
But when they got there, they found that the engine room was a complete mess because the 30 millimeter had gone straight through the side of the ship and taken out the engines. Um, so they let it sink, took the crew back to Invincible, um, discovered there was only one Argentine naval officer on board, uh, Lieutenant Commander, who was in civvies, but immediately um, admitted who he was and was placed in solitary confinement locked in a cabin and um, he assumed he was going to be shot as a spy because he was in civilian clothes and uh, the only guy on the ship who spoke decent Spanish was the Roman Catholic Padre so they sent the Padre along and he saw the Padre coming in and thought oh that's it I'm gonna get me my confession and then they're gonna shoot me um, but we um, we disembarked them to Montevideo um, several days later, I think. 